You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Good morning, investors. Bradley here from Watson Estates, and you're listening to the largest, fastest growing podcast for Toronto real estate on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Today on our show, we're going to talk about what signs of cooling are we seeing as we look at the stats from April 2021. Why is the term bubble mostly inaccurate? We're going to discuss that viewpoint as well. And what market segments show the highest risk of a bubble today? Well, the saying is April showers brings May flowers. And that in fact is the case. We've been making it rain here in Ontario. And in fact, we're seeing the sweet smell of a dampening hot real estate market these days, just in time as you're picking up those flowers for Mother's Day. I mean, my, I don't know about you guys, but I love times like this to show your love to those around you. And my mother-in-law, she suffers from acute diabetes and hay fever. So I'm cheering her up with chocolates and flowers this year. (laughs) Like and subscribe if you want me to take a picture of her reaction. And we love to have fun on this show. I mean, if we're going to do this, we might as well do it right as an investor and a broker myself. I want to know what's going on in our market, where are there are opportunities for us to make some money. And if you're joining us on the show today, you probably do too. So we're going to start off today discussing what are the stats from April 2021 now that they've been released. What signs of cooling in particular are we experiencing? Well, we're going to start with the star.com's article called Toronto region's raging housing market shows first signs of cooling. Sales drop 13%. Sales drop 13% in April. Here we go. Toronto region's blazing real estate market continue to show exceptional year-over-year price growth in April with the selling price of a home year-over-year, including all housing types and all condos, 33% increase. That's $271,000. Congratulations, not a bad income with a primary residence exemption. Y'all did pretty good this year. Way to go. When we look and highlight the detached homes in the 905, they were up 44% year-over-year for prices. And as we dive deeper, we look at the numbers that count. And that is month over month. Because if we're going to look year over year, and we've been prepping you guys for the last few weeks on this, is when you compare against April, we saw nothing but a crash. I guess as we look past the pandemic, that was really March and April seemed to be the crash of 2020. And that's what we're really going up against in these stats. So what we want to see in a more short term is month over month. So here's what really counts. Home prices remained flat between March and April. And contrary to the usual spring trend, which is important here, we tend to see increases in price in May. That didn't happen. Sales actually dipped 12.7% month over month. When we look at a couple couple folks over on Twitter, Scott Ingram had to say on the month over month slowdown in sales, you'll see a drop in 12.7. But interesting thing is it actually slowed down quicker in the 905. So the GTA actually seemed to slow down even more at 14.8% compared to the 416 down only 8.5%, which is something that we're going to want to pay attention to as we continue to map out the month of May. But also Zeland on Twitter had to say, interesting, GTA-wide months of inventory actually increased from March to April, went up from 0.71 up to 0.9 in April, which looks like weakness is spreading from the 905. Right, Everyone's been so excited, this working from home trend, everyone's running, running to the 905. But actually, when we look at just last month's month's stats, maybe this is an indication of a potential shift, maybe a shift in the market. When we look at the 
explanation from the Toronto Real Estate Board. Here's what they say. We've experienced a torrid pace of home sales since the summer of 2020. While seeing little in the way of population growth, we may be starting to exhaust the pool of potential buyers within the existing GTA population. Over the long term, sustained growth in sales requires sustained growth in population. How interesting. I mean, the entire scenario of what took place when everyone was running to the outskirt communities in the GTA seemed to be people who are thinking in the next five or 10 years, we're going to move outwards, all doing it in a matter of a year. Maybe, according to Treb, that's it. Maybe the faucet, what is it? Faucet's closed? Faucet's closed. <laughs> the taps have been shut off. <laughs> but a big spring, a big April for sales. When we look at the sales number, this April sales, relative not just to last year, because obviously we're comparing events a skewed year, but we can definitely look over the last 10 year average and see how we're doing. And in that scenario, it's actually high. In fact, it's up 36.6% over the 10 year average. And that's measuring just from 2010 to 2019, completely removing the 2020 stats. But new listings also declined, something we need to be paying attention to, 8.4% month over month. So over the last month, though we've seen a month of inventory rise, we actually are seeing new listings themselves going down, something we also want to be paying attention to. None of these things are stagnant. They're constantly evolving. That's why we do this podcast. And that's why I love when the stats come out. Looking forward, what does Treb think is going to happen? Here's what they say. While the pace of price growth could moderate in the coming months, home prices will likely continue on an upward trend. Renewed population growth over the next year, coupled with a persistent lack of new inventory, will underpin home price appreciation. And that comes from Jason Mercer of the Toronto Real Estate Board. So let's go... In, in tighter segments, because the way I want to go with this is we've seen a lot of shifting in one particular segment this past month. So I want to focus on that, but we want to start with the detached homes just to give you an update. So detached houses in the city experienced a 36.8% year over year increase, increase, which is crazy. A selling price now on the average detached home in Toronto is $1.7 million. Here's how Scott Ingram says it. My theory is that since January, February, March, and April, which we're experiencing, were all monthly records for sale. It was a case of, quote, early spring. And people had nothing better to do in a pandemic. So instead of waiting around for April, May, June to buy, we're looking early. And that's the way that not only have we seen people from five, 10 years down the road deciding to move out sooner, but we've also seen those that wanted to buy in the spring, potentially, if the numbers seem to line up, decided to do that a bit early as well, which is why we experienced the heat that we did. And the spring just came a little bit earlier than normal this year, which is no big deal. No big deal. You know where flowers go when they get pollinated too early in the spring? Plant parenthood. <laughs> that's rough. That's a tough go. That's offensive. That offends me. <laughs> but let's focus on condos. That's where we're going. Now that we've um, totally removed half of our listeners, <laughs> let's focus on condos. Where is the deal in the coming months? If this is your question, where is there an opportunity? Maybe it's in the condo space. We're going to talk about the ups and the downs that, that are in that particular arena. Real estate experts have suggested that the price appreciation of ground level housing will shift some demand back to the condo sector. So, when we compare condos from their bottom, the lowest they hit in prices, they're actually up 25.1%. And, in the, and that's in the 416. In the 905, they're up 18.7%. 
Sorry, other way around. No, 25% in the 905 and 18.7 in the city of Toronto. So we've gone all the way down and all the way back up. Condos year over year. This year to date, condo prices in the city of Toronto remain. So when we're comparing year over year, we actually see in Toronto, they remain at 1.1% below last year. So although we've seen this massive increase in the way of almost 19%, we're no farther along than we were last year. Whereas in the 905, they're actually 11.2% above their prices in those communities. Just to put it all into, into perspective. So we get these different articles that are coming out this week talking about new life, new life coming to the Toronto condo market. Here's what they say. This is a Globe and Mail article. Momentum in the GTA real estate market has swung back to the city core as buyers feel more optimistic that urban life is undergoing a renaissance. Wow. I like that word. It's a renaissance in Toronto. Feels fancy. <laughs> Sean Hildebrand says he points to a 30% jump in suburban home prices as one reason that we have this swing back in urban properties. No way. People, you're not okay with paying 30% higher prices. Is that maybe a motivator? Absolutely. We've been expecting that. At least I have. Resale inventory dropped to one month of supply in the first quarter, according to Urban Nation, from a bloated five months of inventory in the third quarter of 2020. Think of that. Think of that. In just a couple quarters, we go from five months of inventory to, uh, to one month. Crazy. Manu Singh, right at home, Realty notes that many of the buyers shopping for units this spring are people who already live in downtown Toronto condos and they want to trade up. So people aren't just leaving anymore. Now they're saying, maybe this is my opportunity to climb that condo market. Paul Johnson, right at home, Realty notes that buyers' mindsets are changing as they reconsider their lives in the city and try to shake off the stagnation they have been feeling during the pandemic. <laughs> so last year, when people were asking if they should buy a pre-construction, because I did get a lot of these questions, should I buy a pre-con? Should I buy an assignment sale? Had a lot of these kind of seem to pop up. My advice at that time is you're going to get an assignment sale at the beginning of 20, or, sorry, a few months back, we were saying if you want an assignment sale, I was suggesting as we rounded into the end of 2020 into 2021 was to wait as that panic was kind of rising and to be keep your finger on the pulse. For anybody, and, and in fact, that was true because within a month, I think it was in November, prices started going up. We said, okay, okay, here's the bottom, let's go. And some people acted, but you had to act within a few weeks. More likely, the investment strategy should be long-term. So my advice to a lot of people is if you're going to pick up a pre-construction, they're selling at a higher price than resale. Make sure you have a nice, long, estimated completion date. Well, sure enough, people that opted for that method are rewarded. They've been rewarded. We're going to share with you why. But history is 2020, folks. You can't plant flowers if you haven't bought any. <laughs> so dumb. So dumb. Here we go. Pre-sale condos in Toronto are heating up and they're selling far for more than the resale units. They're way outperforming resale units. Here we go. And now recognize these are stats from Q1. I think that's important to note because we're going to talk about what happened in April, which obviously doesn't fall in Q1 to give you a bit of an update. But all of these things happen from January to March. Here's what they say. It seems that amid the rising sales numbers and prices, those who've chosen the buy and then sell pre-sale units rather than resale units in older buildings are earning substantially more in their investments and more than they would have just one year ago. Here we go. According to Urban Nation for data released in April about Q1, they found that GTA had spiked 27% in three years leading up to the end of 2020 compared to resale condos for which prices increased only 18%. 
over the same period of time. So those who are buying pre-construction have outperformed by almost 10%, by 9%, those who bought the resale. Those who bought pre-sale condos and decided to become landlords when they were finally built have also been able to charge higher rents compared to their mortgage and maintenance costs, the data says. So they're actually able to rent these suckers out and make a positive cash flow. What? Wow. A whopping 76% of pre-sale GTA condos listed in the first quarter of 2021 sold by the end of March, which the firm considers an extremely high proportion. 76%, more than three quarters of them sold out in the first quarter. Crazy, crazy. And they said this is the most it's been since the heyday in 2017. Pre-sale units have sold far, far this year have marked a new record average sale price. So they're outperforming the prices. They continue to go up now, up 8.8% from the same time last year. Too many damn numbers. Let's slow it down. Let's slow it down. As John Pasella says, why on earth would someone spend $1,000 per square foot for a resale condo in downtown Toronto when you can buy a pre-construction for $1.4 or 1400 per square foot? Sounds like, why would you pay that? I mean, what an, what an opportunity, right? And then he says some things really don't make any sense. It's crazy that people are diving into the pre-construction market and the way that they are. But are condos then set up to be on a tear then? As this article that looks at the stats from the first quarter would suggest, things are pretty fantastic. I mean, they're blooming when it comes, uh, no pun intended or pun intended. They're blooming as of the first quarter, but now we have the stats for April. So is that still the case? Also written by BlogTO, this is the same newspaper that wrote the last article we discussed. Here's what they say. Some people are giving up on buying a condo in Toronto and it's bringing sales down as we look in April stats. Interesting. What an ups and downs we've experienced in the condo space this year is cray cray. Toronto's condo market appears to be cooling down once again after a brief pandemic lull that led to a rapid spike in activity for those looking to get a bit of a bargain. That bargain has now been bought. As we see, the prices have come back to where they were. When we look at the largest and most expensive city in Canada, according to the data from condo listing website Strata, the number of condo sales in the city has indeed dropped. It dropped substantially, down 17% in April compared to March. The buying spree that was happening in condo space in March didn't happen in the same way in April. While the number of units on the market actually increased, so now we're seeing an increase once again in supply. Prices per square foot to the cost per square foot began to fall marginally by $3 less per square foot, but interesting nonetheless. So here, here's how they explain this in blog too. I think it's a great explanation, not just for condos, but for the whole market on what's been going on and the market pause we experienced in April. Part of it, they say, is due to buyer fatigue. In such a hectic and competitive market, which is still overall considered high risk with a home in the GTA now costing on average more than a million buckaroos and the average detached house in the city proper now setting buyers back a staggering 1.75 mil with numbers like that. It's no wonder so many have given up on the hope to ever own property in the GTA or even anywhere in the province. As Zeland says, the results are in. He shared his stats. He asked, why do you think GTA house market, the housing market has started to slow in April? His options were buyers are given up or there's the stress test in the vacancy tax. So the recent changes we saw, or is it the recent mortgage rate increases that have been taking place? 73% of them agree it's buyers are giving up. That's what they're saying. That's what these polls that are happening online of consumers are saying. 
So looking to Q2 for condos, while the first quarter of the year saw the condo market bounce back quite dramatically, boosting the portfolios, especially for those who'd invest in pre-sale units, which we just talked about, Strata believes that Q2 will be a whole lot tamer. History is not necessarily a dictator of what's going to happen in the future, but I think it's important to look at that as we look to the looking forward. So now what I want to discuss is the terminology of bubble. I've been throwing the word bubble around a lot lately. And up until we got the stats for April, I was getting a bit nervous. In fact, midway through April, we started noticing that was there was increase, actually a decrease in sales. We started to see some more inventory coming on the market and staying on the market, which is great. And until we start to see this dampening, there really, I would suggest fundamentals didn't seem to line up. But as we're starting to see a bit of a cooling, to me, this is a good thing. And so I thought, you know what, this is an opportunity to take a step back. Let's sit back and discuss if the term bubble is actually is actually accurate or if it's just kind of being overplayed because if it's inaccurate then maybe it's irresponsible to be throwing that terminology to all over the place because bubble assumes a collapse at least it does in my mind but if you're lung, lung if you're lung like me <laughs> if you're lung if you are young wow losing getting too old for this <laughs> uh, you've probably been talked down to if you're young right and you're buying real estate because it's a bubble it's a bubble so if there's only one thing that you can say to those old flowers out there, it's okay, bloomer. <laughs> uh, now, you know what? I really did make my grandma really pissed off about that comment. She's pretty, she's pretty trendy. I'll just make it up to her on Mother's Day. I'll cheer her up. I'll get her some whoopsie daisies or something. So let's look at the Globe and Mail. Trouble with bubble. Why Canada's red hot housing market is defying the burst. So this segment of the show, I want to discuss why bubble is maybe not an accurate an accurate term, really. And for those of you who are bulls out there, like myself included, your expectation is prices will probably go up. This is a bit of ammunition. And I think a very good explanation from the globe explaining why bubble is maybe not the case. Here we go. If it makes you feel any better to say Canada's housing bubble, go ahead and say it. Everyone else has. But when we look 10 years ago, The Economist magazine concluded Canada's real estate was grossly overvalued. Nine years ago, Merrill Lynch declared Canada's housing was afflicted with overvaluation, speculation, and oversupply. Seven years ago, Organization for Economic Cooperation Development and the International Monetary Fund began sounding sirens about the dysfunctional state of the Canadian housing. And a year ago, well, you guys remember what happened a year ago, CMHC went crazy and said, we're going to drop 18%. Well, what did this multi-year burst of public shaming accomplish? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So maybe... Just maybe we should be cautious about throwing the term bubble around. Have Canadian real estate prices surged upward and an unsubstantial or sustainable, sorry, pace in recent months? Absolutely. That's what's been freaking me out. I don't know about you. Are lofty prices leaving the economy vulnerable to future threats, such as unexpected interest rate hikes and other possible shocks? For sure. But is Canada's housing market an epic bubble on the verge of popping? They say not so fast, not so fast. And they got different reasons for it, but some of which are, will real estate go in reverse and the economy eventually reopen? The animal spirits subside to more levels. No one would be surprised if prices wavered. In fact, there's a lot of people calling the second half of 2021 will struggle, which might be what we're starting to see reflected in some of the April data. 
However, one good reason to bet against any housing collapse, bet against the housing collapse, meaning success, is the attitude of key decision makers. Political leaders and central bankers have been cheering on the recent gains. It seems unlikely the powers that be would deliberately inflate house prices only to stand back and watch them topple. Not only are we dependent on the success of the real estate market, even in the federal budget, which was an opportunity to add some kind of change or implement some kind of intervention, nothing took place. So there's very much a wait and see. We don't want that house price you experienced at 10% over the last year to drop again. As Adam Vaughn, the federal liberals parliamentary secretary of housing said, we'll just leave it as is. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, of course. So there, grandma, stick that in your vaccine. <laughs> Maybe when I write her for for um, Mother's Day, I'll write her like a little poem or something. I'll be like, roses are black. <laughs> Violets are black. Everything's black. Because you blind, you old lady. <laughs> Anyways, blind like in the sense of not understanding the real estate market. Moving on. John Pasalis, as an economics researcher and president of Realty, Realosophy Realty. Here's how he says it. Kind of bringing us down to planet Earth once again. It's not all irrational what's happening. But the irrational component, what makes it a bubble, is not these crazy outliers are becoming the norm. So all these insane things are becoming more and more common. Everyone is feeling that they need to spend 30, 40, 50,000 or more when compared to even the comparable houses. So not just the price, but above, there's a, there's a race upwards for three or four weeks ago just to get into the market. That's what he says we've been experiencing. So let's chat about what an irrational market looks like. Just sharing a CBC article with you guys, bad things happening in Ontario real estate market as home buyer complaints surge. We're starting to see a lot more complaints with Rico. There's a story about a family in Hamilton that they wanted to buy a property. Carla Vanderdeen Fennec is her name. She's a 40 year old and her family wanted to buy this property. Here's what she said. If we weren't robbed of a home, somebody else was. This is why I said to my husband, we have to speak up. We have to file a complaint because this is wrong what she experienced. She is one of many that are experiencing this. The complaint went to Rico earlier this year when she says a local listing agent broke the rules by sharing the price of a competing bid. Big no-no. I'm going to share with you the facts of the case. I'm going to share with you my initial thoughts on the case. And we're going to talk a little bit about all the complaints happening to Rico these days. Vander Dean Fennick and her husband offered 1.1 and change million on a home in early February for a 9 a.m. deadline. Listen to this. There were 23 offers. The list price was 900000 so they're well over 200000 there. And the listing agent needed 48 hours to choose one. What a long, irrevocable. She says the listing agent called her realtor at 2 p.m., two hours after her offer expired, saying that they were one of the top five and they had the largest deposit, but there was a bid for $80,000 more than hers. Interesting. So they said, or she quoted, if he had an offer $80,000 more than ours at 9 a.m. when all offers were presented, why didn't he take it? Why is he calling us five hours later? So they didn't, so she didn't go ahead and raise the bid. And in the end, the home did not sell for $80,000 more than her offer. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> all right. So here's some of my thoughts. One, who needs 48 hours irrevocable to look at these offers? My goodness. Number two, why are you responding late if you got 48 hours irrevocable? Three is, first of all, disclosing details of an offer is a big no-no. In fact, Rico, here's, what do they say? I actually will read that in a second what they have to say, but it's a big no-no. It's, it's obvious you don't discuss the details of any other offer, not just price, but any details of the offer with other parties because it creates an unfair advantage, of course. 
Number four, they either lied or they didn't take the highest priced offer. I'm gonna best. I'm gonna guess they lied, and they didn't have an offer that high. But we don't know. We don't know. Leave it up to Rico. They'll determine. But here's a question that I get from a lot of people: Can the agent ask me to represent my offer? Because sometimes we go as we're going into multiple offers. Sometimes I have people who aren't familiar with the system asking, "Can they ask me to improve my offer?" And the answer is absolutely yes. Are they going to? You don't know. It really comes down to how the listing agent conducts their multiple offer presentation. So. I think we would be better off without multiple offers. And I think we'd be definitely better off with no blind bidding wars. But in the meantime, Rico is experiencing a ton, a ton of complaints. Brian Buchan, a spokesperson for Rico says, given the hot housing market, complaints of all kinds are at historic highs. From this time last year to the first quarter of 2020, complaints have jumped 38%. He says, which is one of the largest jumps we've seen. Yet, yet, the number of disciplinary actions haven't increased. Of the complaints, 38% led to administrative action, while 5% led to prosecution, like losing your license. So let me get this straight. Licensed agents are running around pollinating flowers, <laughs> and somehow they're still a human being. <laughs> uh, I'm having fun. I don't know about you guys. Vanderdeen Fenix allegation is in fact a quote fact finding and discovery phase today. After that, Rico will decide if there's any need for investigation. So one in twenty shot that that's the case. And if the allegations are true, if in fact they disclose the they they clearly they disclose the offer details, they clearly they say are in violation of the rules, which the rule is according to them the code of ethics states an agent can disclose the number of offers but cannot reveal the substance of an offer or who is making it. Well, if that's the rule, they broke it. Let's see if, in fact, that's the case. But this is just a result of the craziness, is it not? And one other result that we're seeing from the globe is this idea of escalation clauses. Many disheartened real estate buyers know the feeling of losing arrival bidders in the Canada's high-octane housing market. But imagine the frustration of buyers who learned their bid was stymied by the competitor who declared they would pay 5000 more than the highest offer at the end of the night. I just lost by 5000 bucks. What? Sean Lackey, Kohler Banker, says this is just a landmine waiting for someone to step on. Escalation clauses, from at least from what I've heard, have been quite highly used in outskirt communities like cottages and stuff. I'm, I'm hearing, as I guess, whispers in talking with other agents, but they're very rare. I think that's important to note as well. But typically what the clause is, for summary, is I'm going to bid up to a certain price, which you don't even need to have an upper limit. I'm going to beat the opposing offer, the best offer you have by five, ten thousand, whatever that number is. They say it's an, a tricky scenario for listing agents to navigate because, because of what we just discussed. You can't disclose the substance, including price or conditions or any other term of an offer. So how am I going to pull that off in a clean way? So some offices at this point are saying, if you get an offer like that, then just cross it out. Like you're not even going to accept that as a as a and as a seller. To be honest with you. I haven't had an escalation clause in any of the offers I've received, but I would probably do the same. I'd probably cross out and say, no, no, no. We don't work like that. You know, because playing dirty, you're, you're not allowed to play dirty when it comes to buying a house for your buyer. But when it comes to getting the most money for your house, I mean, well, eh. <laughs> that's a different story. <laughs> though they exist, though, of course, escalation clauses are absolutely rare. So to leave this topic of the bubble off, to answer the question for myself, because every so often we get people, hey, Bradley, what do you think? Well, do you think, question to me, do you think GTA prices are going to crash? My answer, no. <laughs> because I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful things will stay flat. And 
and my ideal scenario is to have a slow rise. That's, that's the best case scenario. Unless we have some kind of government shakeup, right? Which we could have seen recently with the federal announcement didn't happen. But things in investors and blind biddings, these big changes, depending on what the changes are and how much of a psychological impact that would have, that could absolutely affect the market. But my best case scenario is I would like to just, even though we can't go on a beach, I'd like the housing market to just take a chill pill and relax for the next six months. I don't know about you guys. I think I've had enough, I've had enough real estate price appreciation for a little while. <laughs> It's coming from the investor. <laughs> Trader. <laughs> all that to say, all that to say, although I'm allergic to pollen, I feel this spring will be breathtaking. <laughs> but there's only one segment before I get into hot topics. There's only one segment that I think is very exposed right now if I was to be concerned. And we'll discuss that shortly. But seriously, pollen is so bad this year in Toronto that tweakers <laughs> are turning their crystal meth back into Sudafed. <laughs> All right, let's get some hot topics. Please subscribe, hit that like button if you've noticed supply of meth is down this season. We're gonna get into our last, last or we're gonna get into our, our hot topics here, which really do flow into each other um, today. I think it's really fascinating as we kind of see the evolving um, movement for investors. So we're gonna start off with nowtoronto.com's article called Real Estate Developers Must Get Creative to Protect the Environment. Here's what they say. A Toronto real estate development near Yorkdale Mall is offering townhomes with a, municipal, a municipally approved second unit option. And 52%, more than half of the buyers at the Lawrence Heights development have opted to buy with a purpose-built legal rental unit. So, I mean, for any of you guys, I don't know if you've ever bought from a builder, but having them finish the basement for you, let's say it's a basement apartment, a lot of people opt not to do that because it's expensive. But so many people are investing, specifically even in York, there's a ton of people investing that... They're saying, yeah, go ahead, put it in because we're planning on renting it out. I mean, we're just going to pay the price for that. A lot of people are opting to become investors. And I, and I don't know about you guys, but more likely than not, if you're listening to our show, you're probably invested in multiple investment properties or at least have an intention of doing that. That's kind of our audience on this show. But people are realizing the benefits of income properties. And if it's your home, it's a win-win. If it's a portion of your house, right? You get tenants, but you get to make like a B and stay in all winter. Get it? Because Swarm, <laughs> brutal. Globe and Mail, they, they tell us exactly how many people, how many Canadians, specifically how many Torontonians in the GT of A's are invested in multiple properties. In fact, it's one in five almost of homeowners own more than one property. That's according to Canadian Housing Stats Program that shows that almost one in five Toronto property owners own more than one property. The report suggests that homeowners who do own more than one home, in some cases, three, four, or more, is a growing group and is concentrated in Vancouver and Toronto. In the city of Toronto, that is 17% of homeowners own two or more properties. And they all listen to Toronto's number one real estate podcast. <laughs> That's us. That's us, ladies and gentlemen. Quote, while high house prices exclude a growing group from access to decent and affordable housing, the number of households that own more than one property and thus become multiple property owners is also on the rise. Interesting how we have this dilemma. This Dalai Lama between those who can't afford to get into the market. Yes, right. I, I threw that in there. And those who have multiple properties. The middle class is literally disappearing before our eyes. And pesky landlords are owning all the homes that we have to live in. John Pasala says it like this. While I do believe that policies promoting the financialization of houses or houses as an investment are not good for our country or for affordability, at least in Canada, the investors profiting, profiting are regular people, not investment banks 
and pension funds. Which brings me to my next topic. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal had an article describing what is happening south of the border. The article call is called that suburban home buyer could be a foreign government. Here's what it says. Big foreign investment firms that buy office buildings, hotels, and shopping centers around the world have a new favorite real estate play, single family homes in American burbs. These institutions are partnering with U.S. housing companies to buy or build rental homes by the thousands. In suburban neighborhoods near cities such as Atlanta, Las Vegas, and Phoenix, blocks of families are sending monthly rent checks to ventures backed by Canadian pension funds, European insurers, and Asian or Middle Eastern government-run funds. Interesting. Foreign investors barely registered in these markets a few years ago. Now they account for nearly a third of institutional investment in single-family rental homes. So I agree with John's comment. At least it's us, right? Right? Large investment firms just show up, take the goods, and then they fly off like honeybees. Is that accurate? I don't know. I've heard male bees die after mating, but I don't know. I don't know. Isn't that why they call it honey nut Cheerio? <laughs> Next topic, this possibility of interest rates. Interest rates is kind of a question mark. I anticipate interest rates will probably attempt to rise at least by the end of next year. We'll see how that goes. But a, a big leading indicator is what happens in the U.S. Well, CNBC had an article talking about Treasury Secretary Yellen saying rates may have to rise somewhat to keep economy from overheating. So we got this lady, Janet Yellen. On Tuesday, she said that interest rates may have to rise to keep a lid on the growth of the U.S. economy, brought in in part by trillions of dollars in government spending, right? She, here's what she said. It may be that interest rates will have to rise somewhat to make sure that our economy doesn't overheat. Now, later in the day, she's a past, she's a past chair of the Fed between 2014 and 2018. But later in the day, she wheeled it back. And what she said is, it's not something I'm predicting or recommending. That's what she said. But I find it interesting that we're starting to get this feel for, I guess, an openness to the conversation of interest rates going to rise. Again, it'll be interesting to see whether or not that takes place. All right, let's get into our last final topic. What market shows the highest risk of a bubble? Obviously, this is an opinion. This is based on my outlook of everything that's going on. But if there is a bubble, in my opinion, it's in cottages. Competition has spiked as Toronto buyers flee to cottages and public service announcement. Just because you move from Toronto to cottage country doesn't make you a different flower. You're the same flower in a different garden. <laughs> Once a Torontonian, always a Torontonian. You're not a transplant. <laughs> oh, I just find that funny. If that's not a bubble, houses, that's a bubble. Cottages. I love this article from senior economist Robert Kavchich. This description, if we're going to say, if we're going to stand on the side that says you're not necessarily in a bubble in the GTA, that same person is then saying then that the cottages are therefore in a bubble because people are going to come back to the GTA. There's going to be an inflow of population and immigration. Therefore, those who have run to the cottage, you're not going to have that necessarily anymore. So you're in a bubble. Here's how he says it. If you're buying a cottage right now, make sure you really, really, really like it. You might be stuck with it for a while. Even if we build in some permanence because of things like work from home and scarcity of waterfront, it's still not hard to see a scenario where froth comes out and the last buyers in, especially in a blind bidding scenario, are faced with years of negative equity. John Pasella says it like this. Something tells me that cottages might, be up, might end up being the canary in the coal mine. Out of all the segments of the housing market, this one appears to be the most vulnerable. I agree. I agree. 
So we're going to look at a Globe and Mail article today called Remote Work Has Boosted Canada's Hot Housing Market, But How Long Will the Boom Last? And I want to focus in on this work from home trend. What are the stats telling us and what are its public polls or opinions telling us about what comes post-COVID? The dunes and vineyards of Prince Edward County, this is the area we're going to focus on, Sharon Armitage, who's a realtor, said she has never seen anything like the avalanche of city dwellers that have turned up in the past 12 months. It's not just aspiring wine moguls or grapers, as they call them, or wealthy retirees anymore. Young families who can work remotely during the pandemic have been pushing home prices skyward more than 30%. There's one of those 30% in the outer regions last year. The question now is whether the flight from cities and the corresponding real estate boom is from newly favored precincts will last. As vaccination brings Canada closer to the end of the pandemic, despite a crushing third wave, some economists and urbanists are skeptical. They believe we have already reached the high watermark of remote work and that some snapback is inevitable as offices reopen and people remember the joys of urban living post-pandemic. These are thoughts, by the way, that I agree with. We got to be careful. Be careful if you're buying that cottage. Not, maybe not the best source of investment right now, at least in my opinion. And countries, so it's not just an outskirt community type of scenario in, in Ontario Cottage. It's, it's, a, it's worldwide. I mean, countries are totally playing it up. Greece, for example, the sun-dappled Greece began allowing expatriates to have their income tax, have, meaning like in half, for seven years in a bid to lure newly unshackled office workers. Here's what they say. If you can work from anywhere, why not work from Greece? That's their slogan. In Ireland, the national government recently announced plans to revitalize rural districts, rural districts, not urban districts, by encouraging office workers to relocate from Dublin. Go, go, go. We're going to encourage it. We're going to make it easier with promises of better broadband financial support to help local authorities create remote working hubs. We're going to make it easier for you to stay at home. Well, here's a good question. Why the incentives unless there's a concern that it won't continue? If a flight from Irish cities was happening organically, for example, they wouldn't have to be incentivizing it. Ha <laughs> ha! Uh, calling it out. That's Ronan Lyons, assistant professor of economics at Trinity College in Dublin. Well, here, massive firms like we got Google, HSBC have announced plans to experiment with a hybrid work model after the pandemic, employees splitting their time between offices and homes. Canadian tech leaders, including BlackBerry, yeah, because I'm sure you guys are using Blackberries. Chief Executive Officer John Chen say they expect a hybrid model to become common. Is Blackberry still a thing? <laughs> Statistics Canada recently found that among new teleworkers, about 40% wanted to spend half their work hours in home and half outside of it after the pandemic, far more than any other option. So most people want to do a 50-50 option. But listen to this. Only 15% said they wanted to work from their kitchen tables full time. So people want the offices. This is just from asking them what they want. That's the employees. Imagine the employers, right? A survey from thousands of American employers expect just a fifth of working hours to be completed from home after the pandemic. So the bosses are saying, I'd say one in five hours can be worked at home. So in conclusion, that still represents a huge increase over afterlife, afterlife. <laughs> post-COVID. Right? Life has changed. The result is life has changed because of COVID, right? Where before only 5% of the working hours were done at home for Americans. In that sense, the remote work revolution appears here to stay, but a hybrid model, whether it lands on one, two, or three days a week in the office, will still sharply limit where employees are able to live. And let's say it's 40%. 
I'm calling about two to two and a half days working from home at best. So you better be damn close to the office. Or as they say, laptop jockeys who have answered Greece's call may yet find themselves called back from Santorini for bi-weekly meetings in a Mississauga office park. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Toronto-based urban theorist Richard Florida already sees signs of city population rebounding from their, their slight pandemic lulls. Here's what they say. I think you're going to see this summer in the U.S. a big return to cities. I call it the Roaring Twenties. Roaring 2020s. The Renaissance. Fancy. How fancy? We're living in the Twenties. <laughs> As the epicenter of Canada's financial entertainment tech centers, Toronto is like L.A. San Francisco and New York rolled into one. It represents about 20% of the Canada's GDP. And to put into perspective, New York represents under 10% of the U.S. GDP. So this is what they say. There aren't a lot of substitutes for life in Toronto, which comes into play at the time of immigration. Immigration, therefore, in my opinion, will come to Toronto. New arrivals to the country will almost certainly continue to congregate in big cities like Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal, even in a remote working future because the presence of cultural communities are, and because many, this is a great point, immigrants take jobs that can't be performed from home. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. The growth in the city will depend on the amount of immigrants that move to Toronto. They'll come. Trust me. Because we're blessed beyond measure here in Toronto. We have the best flower in the world, surrounded by a bunch of little cute smaller flowers. Take it or leave it. <laughs> we're going to wrap up here. I'm going to tell you a funny joke to wrap this up. But if you guys could, please subscribe. Hit that like button if you agree. We live in a beautiful city. It's been a great pleasure sharing what I'm learning today as an investor and a broker. And if you've got any value, please share it. You can follow me as well at Watson Estates on Instagram. You can stay up to date on what's going on. But I'm going to wrap it up with this. On behalf of the big flower, aka Toronto, here's a message to all our rising smaller flower friends. Hey, bud. <laughs> I'm going to leave it there. Take care and keep it real.